brightest day and blackest night. No evil shall escape my sight. Let those who worship evil's might beware my power. Green Lantern's life. Hey, Sean Angle, Magnus here. I just want to take a minute to give you a salute. Just one of the guys premiered on January the 14th, 2012. And it ended on September the 11th, 2015. That was when the final episode was released. During the entire lifetime of your podcast, your commitment to quality never ceased. You were usually punctual with your release schedule. I'm not aware of very many instances where you were late or, or had missed weeks or anything like that. I've never wanted to do an index uh, type of show. And the reason for that is because I truly cannot think of anything that I love so much that I would want to devote 100% of my podcasting attention to it. Maybe is the best way to put it. You not only did so, but you put out a superior product week after week that I guess in the marketplace of ideas and podcasts and whatnot always scared the holy shit out of me. I was always very concerned about the fact that you were one of the many podcasts that I needed to measure up to. In a weird kind of way, you were sort of competition in as much as I, ha- I felt, always felt like I had to be at least as good as you are at, at what you do. And the other, the other thing is, to kind of tie it back with the release schedule that I mentioned a while ago, I don't want to, I've never wanted to have a, uh, an index type of show because I know for a fact that it would, sooner or later, sooner, I think, it would pod fade. And it, it, that's just seen that, that would just be my natural tendency. But I've, I've noticed that tends to be very much the fate of a lot of index uh, shows. They just seem to uh, pod fade after a while. So you not only kept the quality up, you not only kept the consistency going, but you actually saw it through to the very end. You know, and I'm not really, I'm not aware of very, very many index shows out there that actually uh, fulfill their self-assigned mandate and actually are the definitive accounting of a, uh, of a, uh, of a given show. And so three years, nearly 200 episodes. And I believe that you know, as I look back on it, I'm just, I'm not aware of any clunkers, you know, with your show. And again, that's, that, that's a real testament to the quality of, of what you were able to do during the three years and nearly 200 episodes that you released where I truly cannot think of an episode that, that, maybe wasn't everything that it could have been. I truly cannot think of one. I I thought you, 
you t you found the potential of every single episode, every single comic that you talked about. You never overstayed your welcome. Each of you know each of your episodes are the appropriate length for the comic book that you were discussing. You always made uh, funny, often hilarious comments, and truly, I cannot I, I cannot say a word about the quality of what you were able to deliver for so long. So my hat's off. You absolutely nailed it. And for a lot of us who do podcasting, you need to understand that you're one of the, th one of the examples that a lot of us uh, aspire to, you know, that's the standard that we all want to meet. And I can look back on my own show. I'm not going to cite specific episodes, but I can look back on my own show and I can find several instances of shows that were not what they could have been, you know, whether it was the quality level or something else that was, that was happening with it. Certain shows just didn't exactly pan out. They're kind of clunkers. As I say, I'm at a severe loss to think of any episode of just one of the guys that's uh, a clunker. So, you know, you've done the unlikely in actually finishing up a, uh, a, uh, an index podcast. You've done the improbable in uh, keeping your quality level as high as it is, and you've done the impossible in, inspi in simultaneously inspiring and entertaining so many people. So, um, you know, you and I are both part of the same network, and I'm definitely proud to have you as one of my peers. So congratulations on your success. You've done a hell of a job and I for one can't wait to see what you have in store for us in the future. Congratulations. And I hope you enjoy the rest of the episode. Hey, your attention please. This is a piece of art. This Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Doctor Doom wears body to conceal his own magnet form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host Magnus, and this is the latest in my Smallville retrospective series. In case it wasn't obvious, I've got a shitload of appreciation for Smallville, and so every eighth episode I, I take some time to talk about it. Smallville's my favorite TV show ever. On top of that, it's also my favorite incarnation of Superman except for the comics themselves. I mean, Smallville's top dog for me. Now, saying that tends to be kind of risky business. 
it's possible anyway, but there are a lot of people out there who think Christopher Reeve deserves the top spot on everybody's list. Because they say so. Now, don't misunderstand me. I dig Chris Reeve as Superman as much as the next guy. In fact, the Reeve Superman movies were my entry point into Superman fandom back when I was a kid. I love Reeve. But he's not at the top of my list. I mean, my favorite live-action Superman? Honestly, it's tough to decide between Tom Welling and Henry Cavill. But none of that's the point. The point is, I'm here to talk about Smallville, but it wasn't always this way. You see, I used to spend every eighth episode of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality talking about Star Wars. You can dig those episodes out of the archives if you don't believe me, but truth is, talking about Star Wars comic books got a little old after a while. I guess when you get too far away from the original Unaltered Trilogy, I tend not to have a whole hell of a lot to say about Star Wars. Or at least not as much as I originally thought. So. That alone posed a big challenge to continuing my Star Wars 8th episode specials. It's a big consideration, but there was another uh, problem going on too. A big one. I came to worry that establishing a designated Star Wars episode as part of my format just might have been a little too similar to what two true freaks do and, and stuff with their Star Wars Monthly Mondays. I worried about it anyway, even if nobody else did, but, and, and, and I guess, see, that's the thing. You need to understand that when I first established the format of this podcast, all I really had in mind was creating a format that seemed cool to me. I didn't consider things beyond that point. So the idea I came up with was have six episodes where I talk about whatever the hell I want, a seventh episode to talk about the DC Paradox Press uh, big book series, and, at least originally, the eighth episode to talk about Star Wars comics. Like I said, though, that seemed like a cool format to me, to me, and so I ran with it. And I didn't think too much about how similar the Star Wars thing is to, to what the two true freaks do at all. But it became a slight consideration, even when I was still podcasting from Libsyn. And then it progressed into outright fucking hysterics when I joined up with the Two True Freaks podcast network. Fuck, I don't even remember. It, it was a long time ago, put it that way. So, as a matter of fact, I think it'd be fair to say, you know what, now that I think about it? It'd be fair to say that joining the Two True Freaks podcast network was probably the beginning of the end of my 8th episode Star Wars shows. You see, most people think it's a matter of simple fucking etiquette, not to offend your host. And I tend to agree with that, because Scott and Chris are the ones doing me a favor by hosting me. They never had to be this cool to me, but they are. So, doesn't it seem fair to avoid at least the appearance of ripping off their ideas? I think so.
But anyway. So, all this is a really fucking long way of saying that I made the executive decision to discontinue the Star Wars 8th episode shows that I used to do. As I say, I just wasn't as passionate about it as I originally thought I'd be, and let's not overlook the obvious, I didn't want to risk getting in the doghouse with Scott and Chris. Now, I'm not saying that I'll never talk about Star Wars again in the entire future of this show. I'm absolutely positive that I will. But when I do, it simply won't be done as a designated fixture of my show anymore. It's not going to be part of the format. That's all. So, no big deal, really, right? Still, something had to take the place of Star Wars, right? And eventually I remembered that when I first started this show, I attracted a virtual shitload of attention uh, beginning with my very first episode because I used that occasion to defend Smallville from a bunch of idiotic gripes and criticisms that people have made over years that, honestly, I feel hold absolutely no water whatsoever. So, my idea went that maybe I could somewhat revisit Smallville as a TV series by analyzing it. You know? Rather than defend it, go on the offensive and show just how punk rock Smallville truly is, you know? Talk up all of Smallville's best elements and strong points. Now, I'm not arguing that Smallville's flawless. I never would. In fact, I'd be the first to admit that Smallville has several weaknesses and poor decisions working against it. Let's face it, several things maybe could have been done better. Because, honestly, the people who argue that Smallville is perfect as it is scare me a little bit. And they're out there. No shit. You don't even have to look very long to find them. But, but anyway, the idea beyond all that shit is that it just it bugs a fuck out of me that vast swaths of the so-called fan base just don't see the merits of Smallville. So I guess my point here is that Smallville just doesn't deserve the shit it takes from people on the internet. I mean, these are people who should know better. And don't take that the wrong way. Look. If Smallville just isn't your brand of vodka, whatever, that's cool. But there's a faction of supposed fans out there who never miss a chance to argue that Smallville somehow pisses on everything that makes Superman awesome. Now, if you base that decision on how well Smallville fits in with the continuity and tone of the Reeve movies, yeah, I can see where Smallville might be a pisser for you. If your Superman fandom is limited to or predicated on the Reeve movies, I can totally see where Smallville just isn't your thing, especially from the second season onward. But if you never bothered to give Smallville a chance, these retrospectives may be just for you. I mean, who knows? You may come away from these things as a fan of the series. It's the idea, anyway. When I was first considering doing all these Smallville retrospectives, just kind of shift subjects here, when I first started thinking about doing all these Smallville retrospectives, the thought briefly crossed my mind that 
maybe I could do commentaries for every single episode of the show. But eventually, I realized that I'd have to record in excess of, I don't like it was something like 200 commentaries. Now, I'm awesome. Don't get me wrong. But I just don't have time for that. You know? And let's cut this shit for just a second, shall we? Recording a commentary for the entirety of the dreaded season four just wouldn't be a pretty sight. In fact, I could very well end up losing my mind by episode 10 that season if I tried to record a commentary for everything. Fuck me, the dreaded season four sucks. But holy shit, I'm getting closer to having to talk about the dreaded season four all the time. People, I'm seriously going to need your support to make it through all of the dreaded season four in one piece. Ugh, this could get messy. But whatever, that's still in the future. What I'm saying right now, though, is that these little eighth episode retrospectives are a pretty good way to knock out a handful of Smallville episodes in one go as I bash my way through the entire series. There's more than enough material here with Smallville to last for years worth of eighth episode shows of Trinus Magnus Punch's reality. Anyway, so I guess underneath it all, what I'm driving at here is that all in all, switching the format for these eighth episode uh, shows from Star Wars to Smallville seemed like a good idea. Now, as I go through all this stuff, my goal is to take a sort of holistic approach to my analysis. What I want to do is tie ongoing subplots and other continuity nuggets in subsequent seasons back to what's come before as I go through all of this. And this is primarily because Smallville's continuity is incredibly underrated. For whatever reason, I don't know why, but for whatever reason, people just refuse to acknowledge the amount of time, effort, planning, and success went into each Smallville story. And so because of that, I don't think Smallville ever really got enough credit for having good continuity. So one potential outcome here is that I just might set the record straight when it comes to how good Smallville's continuity really is. So there you have it. Now, last time I finished my remarks by talking about uh, the Season 3 episode, Asylum. And you know what that means. It's time for a break. Be right back to resume the discussion about Smallville Season 3, beginning with Episode 10, Whisper, after these messages. rooftops and alleyways at night, searching for justice. Blind justice. A guardian devil. <coughs> no, 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 that's not actually true. I'm not Daredevil, blind attorney by day and fearless crime fighter by night. No, I am J. David Weeder, a podcaster, but you can call me Dave. 
I do read about Daredevil and his adventures, and I podcast about it on my show, Dave's Daredevil Podcast. You see, it's it's my Daredevil. You get it. You get it. Every Sunday, I read a Daredevil comic and share my thoughts and feelings on the issue, the characters, and the world of Marvel's Man Without Fear in an easily accessible audio form. And I want to take you along for the ride, so tune in each week as we meet Daredevil, his villains, his loves, and more hornhead goodness than you can shake a billy club at. That is every Sunday on iTunes and at www.daredevilpodcast.com. That is daredevilpodcast.com. Take the dare. Listen to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Did I really just say take the dare? He joined the crusade. He helped rule the night. He fought for justice. He wore short pants. Okay, so Robin didn't always have the best fashion sense. But there's no way that he should be ignored, ridiculed, or even derided. He's been an important part of Batman's history for nearly 75 years. And that's why I've decided to give him his due in taking flight... Presented by the Batman Universe, Taking Flight is a podcast dedicated to all incarnations of the Boy Wonder. And every episode, I take a look at the adventures of Dick Grayson, Jason Todd, Tim Drake, Stephanie Brown, Damian Wayne, and all the others who have worn the red, green, and gold at the side of the Cape Crusader. New episodes appear every two weeks at the Batman Universe, which can be found at thebatmanuniverse.net. So join me, Tom Panneries, as I put the spotlight on the greatest sidekick in comicdom. Teenage Anarchist. Hi, this is Erica Durant. You're listening to Magnus talk about Smallville. I'm back now, continuing my review of Smallville, Season 3, Episode 10, Whisper. Clark foils a robbery at a jewelry store, but is temporarily blinded. Meanwhile, Havoc jumps across the pond from the Marvel Universe to kidnap Pete and cause all kinds of other wacky trouble. So, some pretty clear comic book references going on here with The New Adventures of Superboy, Number 24, in Adventure Comics number 259, both of which featured Superboy going blind. Smallville rarely gets enough credit for all the comic book references and storylines that it touched on, so I always try to acknowledge that shit as it comes along. Anyway, other stuff. Remember what I said last time about Lionel's renewed interest in Clark's secret beginning with episode number 9, Asylum? Well... It's back here in full force. Lionel tries to push Chloe around and force her to help him with Clark's secret. This is a variation on what happened before, but there is a new element here. Specifically, Chloe doesn't have the option of running to Lex for help this time around. His psyche... Maybe it's strong enough to withstand the stress of discovering Lionel conspired with Morgan Edge to kill his parents. But maybe it's not. Either way, though, there's 
just no way to know what Lionel might do to Lex and Chloe if she blabs about it to him. Lionel's got the upper hand here, and he knows it. Now, Clark overhears Lionel's entire conversation with Chloe about all of this stuff, thanks to his newfound super hearing. When Chloe swings by the barn later, looking for Pete, Clark wastes no time in biting her head off about it. In fact, <clears throat> that's sort of Clark's thing in this episode. He, because he bit Lana's head off too when she, when, when she tries to help him uh, at school. Although, I could give Clark a mulligan on that one because staying the hell away from Lana was kind of sort of her idea. Then again, she was kind of sort of taking it back by reaching out to him in the first place, so, hmm, I don't know. Something else. Lex pays L Lana's hospital bill because it's his fault that she got smashed by a horse. There's some potential discontinuity here, though. For a guy who just lost part of his memory, he sure seems to know an awful lot about what happened to Lana. At the same time, though, I think you could probably no-prize this by saying that either Lana or Clark told... They basically gave Lex a kind of sanitized, very selective version of what happened and how Lana ever came to, to get smashed in by the horse. Or maybe it was some fucking doctor or something at Smallville's hospital. God knows they don't seem to have a whole lot of regard for their patient's privacy. Anyway. Deeper themes and implications. All the cards are on the table about Chloe's deal with Lionel. Clark now knows all about it. He's not very happy about it right now either. In fact, that leads rather conveniently into a minor theme in this episode, which is the price you pay for eavesdropping. Clark overhears things he might wish he hadn't in the long term. Certainly, Chloe, Lex, and Lionel didn't necessarily benefit from private com conversations becoming public knowledge. The issue here isn't secrets. It's eavesdropping. Or, or, you know, or maybe, maybe it's the price you pay, you and others might pay, for disclosure. That could be it. But either way, spying on people whether you meant to or not, costs something. In this case, Clark overhears Chloe's conversation with Lionel. As a direct result, Lex is humiliated, Lionel's pissed off, Chloe loses her Daily Planet column, and her father loses his job. The point here is that there's a time and a place to just shut the fuck up. Something else. It took Clark a couple of days to learn how to control his x-ray vision back in season one. It took him a full day and one awkward conversation with his parents to figure out how to work his heat vision properly back in the second season. But here in Whisper, with Jonathan and Martha's help, Clark manages pretty decent control of super hearing in just a few minutes. Clark's not only becoming more adept at mastering new powers, but Jonathan and Martha are fully accustomed to weird bullshit popping up at random. Clark and his unexpected, strange, random powers 
are now part of their everyday lives. That's the point. So, episode 11, Delete. Someone's developed a technique for mind control, and they're using it to try to kill Chloe Sullivan. That's really the the short description. I really enjoy aspects of this episode. For starters, Chloe beats the piss out of Lana, and I love it. Love it, love it, love it, love it, love it, love it, love it. She does her best crouching tiger hidden Lana, but Chloe still smacked her around. And there's really no artsy, fartsy, higher meaning to this, but at the beginning of the episode, there's an establishing shot of Smallville High School. And at the far end of the parking lot, you can clearly see Clark waiting in his truck to run Chloe over. From there, we get a quick scene in Chloe's office, after which she goes outside and Clark speeds up from where he was parked just a few minutes earlier. That means someone had to create this establishing shot of Smallville High School, especially for the beginning of this episode. This wasn't stock footage. It was made specifically for delete. And it's just a cool little bit of detail. Nobody would have objected if it hadn't been included. But it was included. It's just a nice touch, that's all I'm saying. Some plots get advanced in a big bad way in this episode. For instance, Lex essentially blackmails Dr. Garner into working for him under pain of publishing Chloe's expose about Summerhold. Lex is working to get those missing seven weeks of his life and memory back, and he obviously figures Garner's his best shot at doing it. This is big. Really big. This propels all or most of Lex's actions for the rest of the season, people. It's also the driving force behind an episode that's coming soon, which I very, truly, fucking dearly cherish. Anyway... Deeper themes and implications. Some pretty ugly ones this time. Molly's the antagonist of this episode. She's basically working to protect Dr. Garner of the Summerhold Institute from an expose that Chloe had planned for her next Daily Planet column before said column got scotched by Lionel. Here's the thing, though. Molly thought she was acting of her own accord, but... The truth is, she was just being exploited by Dr. Garner. He never outright told her to protect him. He just explained his problems to her, and she was allowed to fill in the blanks on her own. That's abuse. Period. End of story. The reason I mention that is because the writing subtly acknowledged Dr. Dr. Garner's methods, and, and then it properly vilifies... Dr. Garner himself and his methods. He's never portrayed as an admirable character. His sneaky exploitation of Molly is never praised or lauded by anybody. At literally every step of the way, he's shown to be a horrible fucking person. Now, I mention all of that to draw a comparison. Adam Knight makes his second appearance on the show here as he helps Chloe uh, take Lana down with some martial arts moves of his own. Later on, he shows a major aptitude for computers. And 
throughout all of this stuff, he dodges questions about all of his skills. And you know what? Whatever. That's just... That's me bringing you up to speed on the character. What bugs me is Adam's relationship with Lana. In particular, they have a scene together in the hospital as Adam's packing his bags, and it creeps me the fuck out. In fact, the entire Adam and Lana relationship creeps me out. And the reason for that is because it's an abusive relationship. It's a perfect fit for the profile and pattern of an abusive relationship. Adam starts by setting limits on Lana's behavior and then expecting her to keep to him. He later moves on to verbal abuse. And I don't really... Look, normally I don't spoil ahead on things, but I just don't care when it comes to this, so I'm just going to say that further down the line, Adam physically abuses Lana too. Now... There is such a thing as an abusive relationship in the real world. It's sad, but they happen every day. What's always bothered me with Adam and Lana, though, is that she falls right into playing the victim in the relationship. She just rolls with it. It seems to come pretty easily to her. Now, I hope it's obvious why that bothers me. But in case it's not, it's because abusive relationships are not normal. This is not how a man and a woman are supposed to relate to each other. I'm not a therapist, so I'm not going to dig into root causes and all that other bullshit. That's all above my pay grade. My only point is that I've seen abusive relationships in my life, and I know that they have to work a certain way. You can't start off beating the snot out of somebody. You have to build your way up to that. You start by setting all kinds of irrational terms for the relationship. Then you have to uh, demean the other person verbally in private. And then you do it in public. And then you beat them up in private. And it all builds slowly up to whatever level comes next. I mention all of this to say that Adam perfectly follows that pattern. He makes demands of Lana in delete, and it escalates from there. At one point, he crosses over into what I at least define as physical abuse. Now, understand what I'm saying here. By itself, showing that would be okay. Fiction sometimes shows us an unpleasant side of life. Not everything in life is sunshine and roses. You can handle these topics in fiction. By itself, that's not the problem. The problem comes when the writing staff doesn't acknowledge that Lana's in an abusive relationship with Adam. It's just treated as normal, especially at first. Adam does eventually get vilified, but oddly enough, it's not because he got... He, he slapped Lana around. Again, this is not normal. Normal, healthy relationships are about building each other up and supporting one another during the tough times. Everybody has a bad day. Everybody. 
says something that they regret sometimes. But fuck's sake, we all know what abuse sounds and looks like. And the Adam and Lana relationship fits every definition of abuse that I've ever read or personally seen. And I don't I don't want to go so far as to say that the abuse is glamorized, but it's never really properly identified either, much less criticized. It simply happens. And nobody ever remarks on just how out of line Adam is for doing this stuff and how Lana needs to take action. It's just there. And that really bothers me. Now, apart from that stuff, Clark tries to talk to Lex about Lionel's potential involvement in all these attempts on Chloe's life. Turns out, Lionel's clean on this one, but what's interesting is how Lex reacts to Clark's accusations. If Lex had been in his right mind, he'd probably have given Clark and his accusations at least some consideration. But thanks to Lionel's partial memory wipe, this is a Lex that we last saw around the time of Perry. He and Lionel were on pretty good terms in that episode, and that's really Lex's last formative experience. Yeah, there were problems with Lionel and Whisper, but fundamentally, Lex interpreted Lionel giving him a job in name only as a lack of confidence in Lex's abilities. As serious as that might be, you have to admit, it's nowhere near as big a problem as kidnapping and attempted murder. My point, though, is that Lex isn't in a mood to hear people talk shit about Lionel, and so he lashes out. It's not just good continuity. It actually does make a lot of sense for, for, for Lex right now. This confrontation momentarily puts Clark and Lex at odds, and it's totally believable because Clark now knows a bunch of shit that Lex doesn't. Clark is morally right to suspect Lionel's involvement. Lex is philosophically justified in defending Lionel against any accusation. Their conflicts in that scene don't come out of nowhere. Lex and Clark both have a point of view on this. And as this episode goes on to show, they both have an agenda. It's interesting that they're both wrong in this scene, though. Clark is factually wrong about Lionel's involvement. And Lex is philosophically wrong for not even considering the possibility that Lionel maybe is behind all of this. But they both have damn good reasons for their points of view. Look, it's a quick scene. Delete as an episode really doesn't hinge on the Lex and Clark conflict in this scene. My point here is that this scene just fucking works. It's no bullshit. It just works. And excuse me while I have a smoke. So, hereafter, episode 12. You know, this episode's significant on several levels. First off, Jordan Cross validates Clark, uh, or sorry, Jonathan Kent's theory from back in Extinction that there might be meteor freaks out there who don't become murderous psychos. Jordan Cross has a meteor power, sure, but he hasn't hurt anybody. In fact, 
he's tried his best to save people from their fates. Now, never with, with any kind of success, he's always failed, but he does try to save them. But beyond that, and this is where things get kind of interesting, beyond that, Jordan's precognition is assumed to be absolute. When he sees somebody die, that's it. End of story. Nobody can save him. Nobody. Nobody except Clark. Clark seems to be the lone sentient agent who can affect somebody's destiny. And that works for me on so fucking many levels. But maybe Mark Verheiden, the writer of Hereafter, should be allowed to speak for himself on this. He was quoted as saying, We were exploring the idea that Clark, as an alien, is different on an almost cosmic scale. And that takes him outside the metaphysical reach of this kid's ability and enabled Clark to prevent things from, from happening that the kid was seeing. End quote. <clears throat> Basically, the concept is that Clark operates on a level that goes beyond Jordan's ability to foresee. And that leads into deeper themes and implications. It opens the door to the morality of Clark's actions. On the one hand, sure, Clark managed to save Coach Altman. And on the surface, that can only be a good thing, right? What that leads to, though, is Coach Altman eventually targeting Lana. Clark rescuing Altman enabled him to try killing Lana. And even though we're talking about Lana, that can only be a bad thing, right? So, did Clark do right by saving Altman? Maybe the right thing to do could have been just letting Altman die? Ultimately, those questions are beyond teenage Clark. In fact, you know what? Fuck that. They're beyond Superman. When all's said and done, people make their own decisions, and then they have to abide by them. Clark has to use his abilities to save people. It's not on him to question the long-term morality of, his, uh, of all of his rescues. Oddly enough, though, this isn't the last time Smallville would tackle this issue. The next time this comes up, Clark is going to have a much clearer moral sense about this question. Going back to Jordan, though, there's a moment where Clark grabs Jordan's shoulder and... Rather than seeing Clark die, we get a, click, a, a very quick glimpse of Superman's cape swishing around in outer space. This is the first time for Smallville to show such blatant and graphic Superman imagery. What it implies is that Clark is effectively immortal. So what Jordan and the viewers see, I think, is Superman leaving Earth along the lines of what happened in DC 1 million, where Superman's outlived his family, friends, fellow superheroes, and Lois. Obviously, this is not the first time Smallville's hinted at DC 1 million. The last time was back in Hourglass from Season 1, where Clark's surrounded by tombstones of everybody that he loves. Cassandra Carver took Clark by the hand to see his future, and unlike most people, Clark saw her vision of the future, too. 
that moment from Hourglass is something that people talk about to this day. But anyway, so DC 1 million, right? Superman's outlived everybody. There's nothing more for him to do, and so he just leaves. That, I think, is what Jordan saw. It's a really fucking cool moment. It came out of nowhere. And this wasn't part of Hereafter's marketing at all. Nobody knew this was coming. Because of that, it was a real sucker punch to see that little sequence for the first time, and man, it sure holds up. And part of what helps sell it is Jordan's reaction, because he has no idea how to process what the fuck he just saw. Now, before I move too, too much further ahead, I, I, I want to touch back on something. I quoted Mark Verheiden saying that basically Clark operates on a different metaphysical level than Jordan does, and because of that, he can affect destiny. I want to repeat that. Clark can affect destiny. Clark can change destiny. It's important that you remember that, because I think this is going to go on to play a very fucking important role in Smallville as a TV show. Remember that. Clark can change destiny. I don't mean it in a time travel kind of way, but he can affect where history is going. He can change the course of events. Whatever somebody's destined to do, Clark can change that. Remember I said this. And also keep in mind, I don't think this is a superpower that Superman has ever been shown to have anywhere else. This is a new superpower here. But again, remember I said this. Clark can change destiny. Anyway. Now, a while ago, I mentioned Adam and Lana's abusive relationship. Well... Hereafter is where it turns into physical abuse. After that little incident, Lana defends Adam from accusations, deflects all criticisms, and even gets a little defensive with people who are only concerned for her well-being. Just think about that for a minute. I think I've said my piece. Still fucking sick, though. Speaking of Adam... Lex takes an active hand and investigates Adam's background. A lot of things don't add up, and Adam doesn't help clarify anything. Plus, Jordan says that Adam's already died. Now, this ties in with plot points that we're going to be seeing more of in the future, and soon. No spoilers here, I just want you to keep all that in mind. Adam has already died. Other things are going on here, though. Chloe retrieves a vial of clear liquid from Adam's apartment. This is the start of something serious. Keep an eye on this. It's big. Oh, yeah. Hereafter ends with Jonathan having a heart attack. Episode 12, Velocity. You know, it's funny. People have wanted to call this a Fast and Furious copycat. Now, I have trouble seeing that myself. The Fast and, and, and the Furious movies, or at least the first one anyway, glamorized illegal street racing. 
Velocity, as an episode, doesn't. In fact, it goes pretty far out of its way to demonize street racing. Now, is the world of street racing really all that bad? Look, I can only speak from my own experience on this. About the time that season one started, I attended street races quite a bit. Maybe not every weekend, but fairly regularly. Now, keep in mind, I was only there as a spectator. I did not race myself. I only watched the races. And basically, the setup was pretty simple. A group of racers had found about... Uh, it, it was about as safe a place as you can hope, considering that we're talking about driving cars at speeds nearing 100 miles per hour. I don't give a flying fuck what anybody says. There's no safe way to drive a car 100 miles an hour. I don't buy it. But to whatever extent you can be safe when you drive that fast, this empty neighborhood was pretty much it. Now, the minute you hear neighborhood, you think suburbia and innocent people wandering around and all that. No. I said this neighborhood was empty, and I mean that it was empty. Maybe construction on houses hadn't started yet. Maybe somebody built the basic outlines of a subdivision, but then something happened and then they just abandoned the place. I don't know. All I can tell you is that no houses were ever built during the entire year I went to those street races. It was just row after row after row of empty, completely empty suburban streets. No buildings. And really, it was just streets and streetlights. That's it. And because it was a subdivision, there were several streets to run multiple races. Now, nobody ever did that, at least not when I was around, but it was an option. Now, understand, this wasn't happening in a vacuum. The police knew damn good and well what was going on, but I think they reasoned that the, the street racers were going to drive around like maniacs no matter what. So, isn't it maybe better for them to do it in a place where innocent people aren't going to get hurt or killed if something goes wrong? Don't misunderstand me. Don't get me wrong. About once every half hour or so, the police would drive up on the racers and pretend to chase everybody out and pretend to push people around and all that stuff, but it, it, guys, it was just for show. After enough people cleared off, the police would leave, and then the racers would come back just a few minutes later. Wash, rinse, repeat. It would happen all fucking night. In fact, on average, I'd say the cops probably showed up seven or eight times each night, each race night. But when they weren't physically there, actively chasing people away. They were up the road, hanging around at a gas station, and waiting to figure out, I assume waiting to figure out, whose turn it was to drive out there and pretend to chase everybody away. Now, during the half hour or 45 minutes or so that the police were gone, there was no law in that subdivision. No law whatsoever. 
When I was hanging around there, I saw fist fights, drug deals, vandalism, petty thefts, and other things. I mean, you name it. I Shit, you name it, I probably saw it while I was out there. Now, I'm not an attorney, but on any average night, I'd be shocked if less than 10 felonies and who the fuck knows how many misdemeanors were committed each night. Some nights were worse than others, but the worst I ever personally saw was a race between some dude in a Mustang <clears throat> and some other guy in a fixed-up Acura Integra or something, I forget. It was a long time ago, so Integras were still around. I have no idea how or why someone would agree to a race that fucking stupid, but nobody seems to care what I think. Anyway, so... The race went just about the way you'd expect. The drivers lined up their cars and then hauled balls out of there once they got the signal. And of course, the Mustang driver chewed the Integra dude up, spit him out, and drove back to the victory circle. And then all hell broke loose. All I can tell you is what I saw. I have no idea what other triggers there might have been for this, but what I saw was the Integra guy hop out of his car, storm over to the Mustang dude, drag him out of his car, and then the Integra guy and a big group of his buddies took turns beating him up. I guess for the sin of winning a race. Now. It didn't take very long for the Mustang guy's friends to realize what was going on, and so they ran over to help their friend. It was originally supposed to be a one-on-one -on -one fist fight. It then became something like four-on-one misdemeanor assault. But then the Mustang dude's friends arrived on the scene, and the next thing I know, I'm in the middle of a full-blown fucking melee. Because I guess other people figured out, you know what, now's probably a good time to to beat other people up who didn't even have anything to do with this craziness. Now, I was never stupid enough to go to the races alone. I mean, look, I knew damn good and well that rough stuff happened out there. So if I went to watch people race, bet your ass I brought several friends with me who liked racing too. It's one thing, though, to have safety in numbers. But there is no safety in numbers when you're in... You're practically in the middle of a fucking riot. Now, by that point, I'd already made up my mind to get the hell out of Dodge, but I stopped walking and started running when people started pulling out all kinds of different weapons and shit. And that was it for me. No more street racing. I didn't have the type of car you race to begin with, but I still liked watching the races. But fuck's sake, man. I didn't want to risk getting killed or maimed for it. To me... That is street racing. That's what happens there. Now, yes, my story is different from what happened in Velocity. But Velocity still went to pains to illustrate just how fucking dangerous it can be even if nobody crashes. The first Fast and Furious movie didn't go anywhere near those links to condemn street racing. So, for me, the similarities between Velocity and The Fast and the Furious are completely fucking superficial. If you're listening to all this and feel compelled to argue that racing at, a, at an official track is different, 
Honestly, motherfucker, don't you think I know that? Street racing and track racing are different things. Okay, so spare me your fucking diatribe. I don't want to hear it. Anyway, to get back on topic, though, Velocity does figure into Pete's character quite a bit. Pete feels lost in Clark's shadow. He's lost out on his chance to date Chloe, and let's face it, he's always overlooked. Racing's fun, and it's, it's something he's good at. And plus, it gives him an identity apart from Clark. And you know what? This isn't anybody's fault either. Clark is who he is. He doesn't throw his balls around about it. He doesn't act like he's better than anybody else. He just does the right thing when he can. And that just so happens to leave Pete out in the out in left field most of the time. So to me, it's natural that Pete would eventually grow to resent that. The conflicts here add up. Anyway, deeper themes and implications. The thing here is that Pete basically forces Clark to steal a Porsche from Lex so that he can settle things with Jason Dante, the villain of the piece. In the end, Jason dies. In Velocity, Pete made Clark lie, cheat, and steal just to get Pete out of trouble that Clark warned him to stay away from, and in the process, somebody fucking died. Jason tried to extort Pete for money, so Pete extorted Clark for protection. So it's understandable that Clark didn't feel like playing basketball with Pete at the end of Velocity. Their relationships changed. This is a big betrayal on Pete's part. Funny thing, though. Lex doesn't see it that way. Look, he knows damn good and well that Clark borrowed his Porsche without permission, specifically to help somebody. Lex applauds Clark for crossing moral boundaries to help his friend. Clark. Hey, Lex. Hey. I was wondering whatever happened with your friend. Turns out the dog's bark is bigger than his bite. I had a feeling you'd work it out, Clark. You know, the oddest thing happened yesterday. After I talked to you, my silver Porsche was seen speeding off the grounds. Someone stole it? Not exactly. By the time I got in, it was resting in my garage snug in its car cover. That's odd. Glad you got it back. Yeah. My security thinks it was a joyrider, but I'm not so sure. Why would you think happened? I don't know. But I understand what it's like to have a friend in need, Clark. Sometimes you have to cross the moral line to come to their aid. Often that could be the test of a true friendship. Lex is proud of Clark, while Clark looks disgusted with himself. The two of them couldn't be further apart on this. Sadly enough, though, Jonathan isn't much better. He essentially echoes Lex by saying that sometimes in life, there are no black and white situations. Sometimes life throws nothing but gray at you. Not long after, without even knowing the full story of what went on with Pete, Jonathan blindly endorses Clark's judgment. 
If Clark did something, anything, Jonathan's positive it was the right thing to do. Clark's earned that in Jonathan's eyes. But then Jonathan confesses that he did speak to Jarrell, and having those superpowers probably is what gave him a heart attack. Clark isn't happy to hear that for a lot of reasons. First, Jonathan Kent is Clark's hero. Always has been, always will be. Jonathan's the architect of Clark's moral universe. To hear his hero talk about immoral and unethical behavior as just a simple fact of life is pretty much the total opposite of what Clark wants to hear at that moment. But the other thing is that Jonathan's confession is a big reminder to Clark that everything that happened is his fault. Not Martha's, not Jonathan's, not Jarrell's, not Lionel's, nobody's. Clark owns this. In fact, there's thematic resonance to this. Clark was in a bad situation, in exile. He needed someone to bail him out, so Jonathan talked to Jarrell, got superpowers, dragged Clark back home, and then he had a heart attack because of the strain the powers put on his body. Pete was in a bad situation. He needed someone to bail him out, so he talked to Clark, who cheated and lied to help Pete win the race, and then Jason died during his race against Pete. It says something about Clark's disassociation that he doesn't connect the dots on this stuff in spite of the fact that he talks about both incidents back to back. Even so, Clark isn't stupid. He knows he failed big time in this. Superman has a perfectly tuned moral compass. He knows what the right thing to do is, and he knows when and how to do it. But teenage Clark's finding his way toward all that. For every step in the right direction, there'll be some proportion of mistakes. Clark makes very few morally right decisions in this episode. In fact, I think it'd be fair to say that this was a pretty shitty episode for Clark in most ways. There's other business going on here, though. Chloe brings Lex an analysis of the serum she found in Adam's apartment back in Hereafter. It contains platelets from no known earthly life form. Apart from that, Chloe discovers that Adam received frequent visits from a Dr. Tang while he was in the Smallville Hospital. No big deal, except Dr. Tang isn't a medical doctor. She's a biological researcher at Metropolis University, and she doesn't see patients. Which begs the question of just what the fuck she was meeting Adam for. Did I mention that Dr. Tang also appeared in Phoenix? Yup, yup. She's the technician that Lionel gave the container of Clark's blood to for the field analysis in the limo. Back when Lionel was meeting up with Morgan Edge on the pier. That was her. Now, Lex initially strikes out when he tries to meet with Dr. Tang, so he makes a few calls and then has her tenure revo revoked, and then he threatens to sick the authorities on her for conducting illicit, uh, illicit medical drug trials without FDA approval. That is, unless she comes to work for him for double her current budget. Seems like a no-brainer to me. You see, 
Lex is mastering the art of buying people. In season one, Lex attempted to buy Roger Nixon. But once Lex restored Roger's virtual identity to him, really, there was nothing in it for Roger to, to play the game by Lex's rules. Same thing with Dr. Walden in season two. Walden already had a thriving career as a linguist. Lex had no power over Walden because he had nothing with which to bargain. He doesn't make those mistakes with Dr. Tang. He arranges for her tenure to be revoked. There are no circumstances where she can get that back. It's over. She has no place else to go for employment. But that's not enough. There needs to be, in some sense, a gun on the other side of the argument, or else What's to stop Dr. Tang from looking for another job someplace else? So Lex has to threaten her with deportation unless she does his bidding. In this episode, Clark failed spectacularly at being a superhero. But Lex has obviously made a lot of progress towards being a supervillain. Obsession, episode 14. Clark meets Alicia Baker. Clark saves Alicia's life. Alicia saves Clark from his secret being exposed. Clark takes Alicia on a date, and Alicia gets close with Clark. By which I mean Glenn Close. Sarah Carter plays Alicia Baker, Clark's teleporting psycho girlfriend in this episode. She's the one who puts the obsession in this episode's title, in fact. And yes, Sarah Carter is gorgeous, no doubt about it, but she's always looked insane to me. Something about her just sets off my cray-cray dart. Keep in mind, though, I went through a pretty long phase where I was pretty sure that everybody in the entire world is crazy except for me. The other thing, though, is that I've been on some really horrifying dates in my time. You just... Guys, you just wouldn't believe some of the lunatics I hung out with in my 20s. I know from crazy. And Alicia is batshit fucking crazy. It's... It's still pretty easy to see Clark's point of view on all of this, though. As I said, Alicia and Clark really are kindred spirits in some ways, inasmuch as they both have secrets to protect. They also know what it's like to, to have to carry that around with them every single day. And as I said, Alicia's gorgeous, so Clark probably didn't mind too much when she teleported into his bedroom for some late night snuggling. I mean, Clark's a teenage guy, so he probably enjoyed getting high fives from Pete and Lex about it. It's very easy to see Clark's side on all this. Across the board, character motivations and conflicts add up here. I, so don't misunderstand me. I just don't like this episode, and I think that's because I don't like Alicia. And as I said, that's because she really weirds me out. Again, I'm not a therapist, let's be clear on that, but... It looks like Alicia's suffering from a few different uh, mental disorders, the most prominent of which 
seems to be erotomania, which is a mental disorder associated with psychosis. Specifically, a patient believes that someone is secretly declaring their love for the patient through subtle things like body language, choice of clothing, facial expression, or other seemingly trivial things. The patient usually responds in what they believe is like manner by giving gifts or making unannounced visits and things like that. When the target tries to discourage or end this behavior, the patient usually dismisses it as an attempt to keep their relationship quote unquote a secret from everybody else. In other words, an erotomaniac is a, a good candidate to be a stalker. This can be really serious shit because people a lot smarter than me believe that John Hinckley is an erotomaniac. Violence and or murder are absolutely on the table when you're, when you're dealing with an erotomanic episode. Does any of this sound like Alicia to you guys? Still, there's a pretty good scene with Lex and Clark at Luther Mansion where he gives Clark a couple of hard truths. Lex's issue is, is that on some level, Alicia's fixation with Clark isn't totally her fault. Clark must have done something to encourage her. This is a two-way street in Lex's view. This is the kind of honesty that Clark can't get just anywhere else. Pete would only ask Clark if he's fucked Alicia yet. Martha would caution Clark to be careful. Jonathan would cross his arms and frown in disapproval of the whole thing. Chloe would get jealous. Lana would want to talk about herself. Lionel would slyly suggest that he's closing in on Clark's secret. Adam Knight would say that he doesn't know what to do. And then he'd smack Lana upside the head for no reason because he's an abusive asshole and that's what abusive assholes do. Dr. Swan wouldn't have anything to say but he'd make sure to call Clark Kal-El a lot. Sheriff Adams would threaten Clark with jail time for something or other. And Tina Greer would probably encourage their relationship with Alicia to keep Clark away from Lana but Tina can't say anything because Tina's dead and shit. So. Clark really has no one else to talk to him uh, who'll just cut the bullshit and just level with him. Incidentally, I don't think Lex is right here. Clark wanted to explore a romantic scenario with Alicia, it's true, but he wasn't necessarily encouraging her in the way Lex thinks. But anyway, in the end, Alicia gets carried away in as much as Clark slimes her in a red, lead-based paint that sure as shit reminds me of that infamous sissy SpaceX scene, and I think that's enough love stuff for a while. God knows I'm getting tired of talking about it. Still, Alicia's not exactly down for the count. It's not a spoiler to say that we're going to be seeing her again before too long. And when she comes back, it'll be to change Clark and other characters' lives forever. But that's still to come. I said before that I don't like this episode, and I don't. And honestly, I feel like the concept itself is just fine. The problem here is it's paced all kinds of wonky. The A-plot here is obviously that Clark's dating a chick who's batshit fucking nuts. Sooner or later, he has to realize that. 
And once he realizes that, he has to figure out a way to shut her down. Unfortunately, though, the moment of realization occurs at something like the 20-minute mark. So from that point on, we're, we're all just marking time until Clark and Alicia have some kind of showdown. Now, let's run with a scenario where the essential plot is mostly the same, but it's spread further out. Obsession is 42 minutes and 40 seconds long. And as I said, Clark figures out what's going on at the 20-minute mark. That's the way things are right now. So, let's suppose Clark has to wait until the 30-minute mark to figure out Alicia's a few fries short of a Happy Meal. That gives him time to be interested in her and build something of an emotional attachment. There can be maybe a few breadcrumbs uh, sprinkled here and there that, you know, for Clark, that Alicia's maybe off her rocker, but nothing too blatant. Meanwhile, the viewer sees Alicia spying on Clark and gradually forcing herself into his life more and more until Clark experiences what alcoholics refer to as a moment of clarity and realizes that Alicia's as fucked up as a soup sandwich. And then from there, we get six to eight minutes of escalating action to the climax, and then maybe another six to eight minutes of falling action. It's just paced better this way in the, than in the finished product, but whatevs, it's over now. Speaking of stalking, spying, and surveillance, we've got goings-on with Adam that we probably need to go through. Lana finds Adam's journal, which is filled to overflowing with details about Lana, Clark, and what those two have done together lately. Lana tips Clark off and then enlists Lex to help her have Adam evicted from the talent. Lex knows how to handle problems, and specifically how to make people disappear. Because of that, he promises that he'll deal with Adam. Turns out, though, Lex's help isn't necessary. Lionel Luther's goons have taken Adam to Dr. Tang's lab, where Lionel reminds Adam that he was sent to Smallville to find out what Lana knows about Clark, but all he's accomplished is pissing Lana off and getting a lot of people backtracking his origins. Lionel denies any further treatments for Adam when Dr. Tang offers them, and they both leave Adam for dead in the lab. Something, something. Season 3 is full of all kinds of dark shit. Deeper themes and implications. One kind of has to question Clark's motives when it comes to uh, Lana and Alicia. His dialogue with Martha toward the end of the episode, after Lana swings by, indicates, as Hourglass kind of first suggested, that Clark's biggest fear is being alone. Clark's interest, first in Lana and later with Alicia, are best analyzed through the lens of Clark's fear of isolation. Clark was raised by kind and loving parents. Family means more to Clark than maybe other people because, well, I guess first of all, because Clark wasn't allowed to have much of a social life as a kid, and second, because he knows that Martha and Jonathan have never taken advantage of them never exploited him for their own purposes or, for that matter, done anything else to hurt him. Clark's a social person. He needs people to love and he needs people who will love him back. And it needs to be unconditional. 
Lana has immediate ties to the town of Smallville. In fact, there's a weird sense in which Lana is the poster girl for everything the town of Smallville is all about. Clark's, Clark wants her to want him, maybe because she represents his home. But he also carries some guilt about some of Lana's hardships, and so he may view her as someone he can take care of. On that basis, then, what Clark is seeking could be fairly described as a as, as a, a little bit of a codependent type of relationship. So, if I'm right, Lana satisfies that for him. A relationship with Lana will allow Clark to care for Lana at the expense even of his own needs. It's one thing to care for someone. Clark's not off base with that. But taking care of someone shouldn't manifest itself in unhealthy or destructive ways. Narcissists attract codependence. Lana is about as narcissistic as you can possibly hope to get, which reinforces Clark as something of a codependent. Assuming that I'm right, that Alicia is erotomanic, I assume then that Clark would naturally be repelled by her fixation on him. A codependent needs someone else to be the center of their world. They're probably not used to being the center of somebody else's world. In other words, codependents need to lift somebody else up. They might be uncomfortable being lifted up themselves. This stuff would tend to explain why Clark keeps coming back to Lana and why he was so uncomfortable with Alicia's fixation on him. For the moment, anyway, Clark and Alicia are oil and water. Kindred spirits, they might be, but for now, they need fundamentally different types of relationships. Again, I'm not a shrink, but these are my understandings of how these mental problems work. I bring it all up to say, though, that Clark may not be codependent insofar as a clinical diagnosis is concerned. He may just exhibit a few common traits of codependency, and that's fine. But putting aside Superman stuff, Clark can't really be a man, an adult, until he works some of this shit out. Luckily for Clark, he'll eventually meet a character who will show him more about what a normal, healthy relationship is supposed to look like. Anyway, so I think that's basically it for this time. Uh, time for a break. Be right back after these messages. This is Huckleberry Ham, and when I'm not busy making movies or TV shows, I enjoy listening to my favorite internet radio show, Two True Freaks. They got all sorts of shows for y'all to listen to, covering all sorts of geeky topics. Star Trek, Star Wars, cartoons, scary movies, folks eating supper, music, giant monsters, and one feller who buys stuff at garage sales. And the funny books. 
My word, the funny bugs. Old funny bugs. New funny bugs. Scary funny bugs. Movies about funny bugs. Funny bugs about movies. British fellers talking about funny bugs. And lots more. So why don't you check these fellers out and head on over to twotruefreaks.com and tell them Huckleberry sent you. Two True Freaks, chock full of great podcasts since 2008. Sounds great, Mr. Hound. Thanks for coming in today. Oh, no problem, fellers. Now, if y'all excuse me, I have to run. I'm shooting a movie. It's a western, and if y'all see Quick Draw McGraw, don't tell him. He's still hot at me about the good, the bad, and Huckleberry Hound. And once he gets all El Cabong, he's a pain in the you-know-where. And then there was this one time that he and Baba Louie had a little too much sarsaparilla, and Quickdraw said something to McGilla Gorilla that I won't repeat, you understand? We were shooting Yogi's gang, and things got mighty tense. Boo-Boo, and, and Boo-Boo's a great feller, real sharp, love working with him. Boo-Boo kept it all from Yogi, you understand? But boy, I tell you, TwoTrueFreaks.com. Tell them Huckleberry the sent you. Star Trek Comic Books Mythology Video Games Toys Star Wars Just about any geeky topic you can think of could be covered on The Hammer Podcast presented by Two True Freaks Come join me Gene Hendricks, for whatever my disjointed mental processes can come up with, and be careful, or you might just learn something before we're done. The Hammer Podcast is available monthly, both on its own iTunes feed and at twotruefreaks.com. So I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus punches reality there you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when i put them up you can friend me on facebook just by searching for trentus magnus which is spelled t-r-e-n-t-u-s-m-a-g-n-u-s you can email me and my parole officer at trentusmagnus at gmail.com do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or 
any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing, and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2 True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the 2 True Freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Do not remove this tag under penalty of law. All models are over the age of 18. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonzacore of Milan, Italy.